Hey, well, today we're going to start kind of, it's not a series today, but um, we're going to transition off of the one another series that we did, and so hopefully you found that helpful. But today I just want to do a standalone talk and, um, and kind of think about, of course, leading into Easter, and I want to do a talk today on the Garden of Gethsemane, and I felt like, you know, Holy Spirit put this into my heart to share with you, and my, my, my hope or what I really sense that God wants to communicate, you know, somehow through me and through his word to us today is that you'd have a really good grasp on what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then even the song about hope that we just sang has a lot to do with what we're going to find in the, in the garden. And so anyways, um, if you have your Bible or Bible app, um, you have your sermon notes, hopefully when you came in, if you don't have sermon notes, please raise your hand. If you'd like some, an usher or somebody will bring one by to you. Just put your hand up really high. Can't do this because they can't see you. Put it up really high and they'll bring a sermon note to you. Um, so if you have your Bibles, Matthew 26, that's where we're going to be today. And then we'll have, of course, all the verses on the screen as well. Matthew 26 is going to be our main passage, but we're going to jump around in a couple of different scriptures as well. And so got a lot of content to get through, and uh, so let's, let's just dive in. Uh, as we head into the week of Easter, a lot of people talk about, of course, uh, Holy Week. And so many of you have maybe heard of, of Holy Week. And inside of Holy Week, there is a day, and the day is called Monday, Thursday, and how many of you ever heard of Monday, Thursday? How many of you have never heard of Monday, Thursday? Lift your hand high as so I see you. Okay, so this perfect, all right, perfect. And uh, so Monday, Thursday, the word uh, Monday comes from a Latin word. I'm not even going to try to say it, okay, for a commandment. This is what I want you to see. And Monday, Thursday is often referred to this idea of a commandment on a Thursday because Jesus gave the commandment to love one another. And he says, a new commandment I give you to love one another. And so because of this commandment that you'll hear the term sometimes um, about Monday, Thursday, and that's where it comes from. It's pretty simple. And I want to talk to you about what happened on this particular night. This is the day that many believe is the Passover. There's a lot of biblical debate, and you could debate whether it was a Wednesday or was it Thursday, Friday, was it Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Most people agree that it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and that's why we celebrate that here in our culture in regards to kind of leading into Easter. So this is Thursday night that we're going to really unpack in this. And I want to talk to you about what happened, and we'll call it on this Thursday night. Uh, and that's where we're going to start. So Matthew 26 is where I want you to be. But I'm going to go first to John's account. So just for context, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each records their specific angle on the life of Jesus. So I'm going to start with John's account of this, then eventually we'll get to Matthew. So just hold your place in Matthew. But I want to show you John and what he says uh, about this story in the garden. All right, so John 18, verse 1, we'll put it on the screen. He says, when we had finished praying, because in John 17, Jesus prays for unity of the church, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. Okay, and he and his disciples went into it. So that's John, John's account of this, and I pulled that out because I wanted you to understand Kidron Valley. Again, I'm going to try to really give you the best picture of what happened in the garden. And that's, again, that's the hope that you walk here going, ah, you know, I didn't see that or didn't hear that. Okay, got it. And so that you never leave it. So that's the goal. All right, so Kidron Valley. I want to show you a map of Kidron Valley. And um, it's hard maybe to make out on the screens up there, but if you can tell right where Zechariah's tomb is, there's a green 
uh, kind of a highlighted area, and you can see that here, you know, on the screen going down the middle. Uh, it separates the Mount of Olives in Old Jerusalem, or the Temple Mount, where sacrifices would be done. And this Kidron Valley actually goes down past the Dead Sea, eventually to the Red Sea. It stretches, you'll see in just a minute, about 200 miles long. Now, the reason why that matters is I want to show you something about Kidron Valley, because this is going to come important to the context. So remember that they go through Kidron Valley, which I'll show you in just a minute. All right. So the disciples left. They crossed Kidron Valley. I want you to see this. So what's Kidron Valley? Why is that so important? 2 Kings 23, verse 6. It says, he, this is talking about King Josiah, Okay, so I just put that in. That's not in the, the scripture, but I wanted you to know he's talking about King Josiah. Took Asaph pole uh, from the temple of the Lord to Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. Okay, he ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of common people. So if you were to see this, we might show this image later on. But there is an image. If you look at Kidron Valley, there are tombs everywhere. I want you to keep that in mind. Another passage I want to show you in the prophet Joel, chapter 3, verse 2, it says this about Kidron Valley. It says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And you'd say, well, that's not the valley of Kidron. It is. It's often referred to as the valley of Jehoshaphat. It could be called the Kidron Valley. It can even be called in Joel 3, 14, the same prophet writes, the valley of decision. All this matters. Look what it says. There, God says, I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. Okay, all that's about Kidron Valley. So write this in your notes, two key understandings about Kidron Valley. Number one, it's referred to in scripture often as a place of sorrow, judgment, and death. You have to keep this in mind to help you really get the full picture of what happens in Gethsemane. Okay? All right. So you see in Scripture, and I just wanted to give you a few verses just to show you. If I just told you that, I wanted you to kind of see that in Scripture. I wanted you to see the truth in that. So sorrow, judgment, death. All right? Second thing. It's also called oftentimes the wine press. Keep that in mind. Of God's wrath. The wine press of God's wrath. Revelation 1420 says this in reference to this area. Watch this. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, speaking to Kidron Valley, and the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle, about five feet, or 1600 stadia, which is about 200 miles. Now go back to the map for just a second, as I told you a moment ago. If you start from the top where this temple mount is, where sacrifices would be done, what would happen is around Passover when lamb were slain, blood would pour down into the valley. The valley, the blood would then flow, right, as it goes down in through this valley, traveling about 200 miles down, okay, or however long it would flow, past the Red Sea. And this is what Jesus and his followers crossed in order to get to Gethsemane. And I think that's important to keep in mind. And John evidently wants us to know, because John 18, 1 says that Jesus crossed it, and he went into it. So what's he crossing? He's crossing this flow of blood, entering into a place of judgment, sorrow, and death. I want you to see the symbolism in this. The Bible is incredible. 
Do you hear me? It is, it is an, it's incredible when you really unpack it and you go, okay, that's not just in there randomly. Everything in Scripture has got intentionality behind it. Okay, so I want you to know that when John wrote Kidron Valley, that wasn't just so you know Kidron Valley. There's intention behind that because there's sorrow, there's judgment, and there's death. All right, so keep that in mind. Now Matthew 26, 36. Matthew writes and he says, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go pray over there. Okay, pause, Gethsemane. How many of you have ever heard, raise your hand, of the garden of Gethsemane? Raise your hand, garden of Gethsemane, raise your hand. Okay, keep your hand up. Okay, there is actually not a garden of Gethsemane. Did you know that? No. How many of you have been told in some setting that the garden of Gethsemane? Okay, it's not. I'm going to show you this, very important, okay, to see this picture, okay? All right, watch this. So, you say, where do we get the garden of Gethsemane from? Why do we say that? Where does that come from? I'll show you. Again, to go to three quick accounts. Mark writes this. He says, a place called Gethsemane. Luke writes, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, okay? Then John writes, we just read a minute ago, there was a garden. They went into a garden. So when we say the Garden of Gethsemane, we're really taking these thoughts and putting them together and we're saying the Garden of Gethsemane, even though biblically that's not correct. They went to a place called Gethsemane, all right? So I want you to do this, okay? I want you to say two words, and we're going to put them together, and I want to show you this, why this happens, all right? I want you to say the word goth. You can put it up on the screen if we have it. Okay, goth means press. Write that to the, keep that in your mind, okay? It means to press. I'll show you something. Shemanim is a Greek word that means to oil. Okay, so you put those two words together, and what do you have? Press oil or oil press. Okay, that's important, and I'll show you why. I'm gonna walk you through the process of making olive oil, all right? And I'm gonna show you a couple of slides to help bring this to understanding. So the first image I wanna show you is one of an olive press wheel. Okay, this is what would have been used, and you can go there today and you can see certain you know, models of this, but this is, what would have been used in the first process of crushing the olives. So you have the skin, the pit, the whole thing, and they would take a, an animal, sometimes put a child to work, you know, one of their children, do their chores and go out and whatever and push it, and they take, you can notice the log that's sticking out, spin it, walk it around as it crushes the olives. And as it begins to crush the olives, again, the liquid begins to rise up, and in this first process was actually referred to as the best uh, oil or the finest oil. And the first oil or the finest oil always gets poured out for God, always gets offered to God because God always gets the first and he always gets the best. In today's world, you know this as extra virgin olive oil. How many did not know that? That's incredible. All of you knew that? I didn't know that. I learned that. I don't believe you. How many of you did not know that? See? I knew you were lying a minute ago. I was like, man, that's not good. No way. Okay. Okay. Now let me show you the second process. I'll show you some baskets. 
after it goes through this you know, wheel that goes around and smashes it, they would collect the pulp, right? Because you got some of the pulp that has been smashed into that uh, stone setting, the circular set where it was. They would scoop that up into these often hemp-made baskets. And they would take that up and they would spread them out amongst these baskets. And then in the third process, they would stack them like this. And I'll show you another slide. And here's what they would do. If you notice... They're stacked up, and there's a stone placed on top, and this is just one of the pictures of an oil press of what it would look like. So you have this pulp, and you have some of these seeds and some of these crushed olives already, but in order to maximize and get the most oil out, they would put a stone or stack them. Sometimes they'd put a big log or a cedar log, one of the heaviest logs they would have, put it on top, and then they would begin to lower it and smash it down in order to catch more oil. And when that didn't work, They would take stones. If you notice on the side, they have some kind of rope with heavy stones attached to them. And what they would do is, is they would uh, lift it up and allow those stones to put more and more and more weight until all the oil would seep out. So when we say Gethsemane, in English we say Gethsemane, it simply is referring to this process. It's referring to the name of this process in making and pressing oil. That's where it comes from. All right. Now you say, why do I say that? Why do I think that's so important for you to know? Because I want to show you the final stage. When this oil gets pressed, right, all these olives get pressed out and the weight is added, I want to show you a photo of what it looks like. We'll put it up. And if you notice, the olive oil is blood red. And this is where Jesus goes and prays the night before that happened to his body. It's a picture. It's not just a random location. And I believe the Lord wants us to understand that. There's symbolism in this. Important symbolism to grasp and understand of what is going to happen to him. In fact, it's likely that the Gethsemane, if you think about it, the oil press And where they were located most likely was actually inside of a cave. It would have been empty because it's springtime and you don't harvest olives in springtime. So it would have been empty. In theory, the idea would be that maybe it was on loan from somebody who owned it. And they allowed him and his disciples to stay in the Gethsemane, in the oil press. But we know that Jesus leaves the oil press with a few of his followers. And he goes outside to a garden. Because John says, well, he went to a garden, and he did. But more likely, there was a garden next to the oil press, maybe right across the way or somewhere near it. And so they go, it says in Matthew 26, 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. So what did he cross in order to get to Gethsemane, Kidron Valley? What does Kidron Valley have a lot of symbolism in Scripture? Sorrow, judgment, 
death. Okay, so Jesus, sorrowful and deeply distressed, then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the death. Stay here and watch with me. Now I want you to say, La Shemarim. Okay, let's do it one more time. La Shemarim. La Shemarim was a Hebrew term that meant night of watching. So when he says, watch with me, and we know from the story that the disciples fell asleep, didn't watch so well, but the reason he uses this language is important. What's Jesus doing? He's reaching back to Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, we know, we see the story of the Passover, where God says, would you put the blood of the, of the, the lamb or the sacrificial animal on your doorpost? And if you put that over your doorpost, I will pass over. And now remember, in Exodus, we did a whole series on Exodus. It says that God spoke this in Exodus 12, 12. On the same night, I'll pass through Egypt, strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the, do you remember this, gods of Egypt. So God is declaring war on the gods of Egypt because the people are following false gods and he's wanting to reveal to them that he is the one true God and all these false gods are not their provider and their source of life, amen? So he brings judgment on the gods of Egypt. And in order to do so, he says, I want you to cover your blood, cover your doorposts with these spots of, of blood. Okay, that's important to understand. Because in this particular context, he says, watch with me. And the reason why that's important is because if you were a Hebrew, if you were a Jew, you knew this as the night of watching. Because the night that God says, I'm going to come through and sweep out and gonna, everyone's going to get destroyed except for those that have the blood on the doorpost, you would have stayed up all night what? Watching. So they refer to this as the night of watching. And so what Jesus is essentially saying to his followers is, come with me. Watch with me what God is about to do. Everything's intentional. All right. So he does it. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Put the verse back up if you would. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the point to stay here and watch with me. The word soul refers to what we would know as psyche. That's not how you say it in Greek, but I'm just saying that's where we get this idea of psyche from. It is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now, it's of my opinion, there's different arguments on this, that I believe that we are made up of soul, spirit, and body. I see it as three, not as two, personally. That's just me. Now, Jesus says, my soul. Now, if you think about that, that is his will. Keep that in mind. What is your will? Your desires. You have desires, I have desires. That is a part of the soul. Your thoughts, your mind, your will, and your emotions. And he says, my soul, my desires, my mind, my emotions are a wreck. In fact, a lot of biblical scholars have a really difficult time translating this word sorrow. And some scriptures you'll see, NLT, I think, translates it troubled. You'll get a different variations of words because in English, we have a really hard time trying to define the seriousness of this sorrowful feel, uh, sorrow, the sorrowness that, that he has inside. That's why we add the word exceedingly, because we don't know how else to say it. So he's exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point, basically, to cause one's death. Like so much sadness that it feels like he's dying. He's the, the terror, the horror that's overcoming him in this moment. Okay, this is what's happening inside of his soul. 
Matthew goes on to write, so he went a little farther, fell on his face, which makes sense if you're broken, sad in this way, and he says, oh, my father, it is, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I want to talk to you about this cup, okay? So in Judaism, there are tip, current today, there's five cups during a Passover. The fifth cup is what's called the cup of Elijah. But in this context, there would be four typical cups. We'll unpack that a little bit later. Uh, on Good Friday, I'll, I'll go and kind of go more into the depths about these four individual cups. Um, so I don't want to get lost in that now. It comes from Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 7. talks about these four cups. And each four cups was a symbol of God's promise. Well, that is not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about one of those cups. He's talking about a different cup, which is often referred to as the fifth cup. Not the cup of Elijah, but a different cup. And I believe we see it in Scripture clearly in several places. And I want to show you the cup that he talks about and why he uses the language, the cup. All right, let me show it to you. Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah the prophet writes, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, look what happens, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Now, when the creator of the world, God, says, I'm going to take my sword and start swinging, that's not a good thing. Amen? The scripture says that God, God causes lightning to hit its mark. You don't want the one who causes lightning to hit his mark to come after you. This is not a good day. So, I want to show you another one, Isaiah 51. The prophet Isaiah writes this, wake up, wake up, O Jerusalem, you have drunk the cup of the Lord's fury. Did you know that Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven? Just keep this in mind. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to show you something. God is a gracious God. He is. He's compassionate, slow to anger. But you also don't want to mess with them either. Okay, the Lord's fury. He says, you have drunk the cup of terror. Tipping out its last drops, not one of your children is left alive to take your hand and guide you. These two calamities have fallen on you, desolation and destruction, famine and war. And then he writes, and who is left to sympathize with you? Who is left to comfort you? So when Jesus says, let this cup pass over me, what's he referring to? The cup of God's wrath. Okay? Write this in your notes. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. So here you have Jesus coming outside of an oil press who's about to be pressed on every side. And the sins and the judgment 
of the world is going to be placed like the stones we saw and press on him to squeeze out what? Every drop of blood to pay for the sins of the world. If you woke up like the man Jesus and you knew that God was after you and you were going to be under and have to drink the cup of his wrath, you would not think to yourself, today is a glorious day. Today is the hardest day of your life. And it's going to end real soon. And he's getting a picture of it as he crosses over the Kidron Valley of judgment, sorrow, and death, as he passes by the tombs and he's thinking, I think Jesus is thinking this. As the man, I'll talk about that in a second, that's gonna be me. Now, Jesus, with this in mind as part of the backdrop, I think Paul, by the way, does a great job helping us understand what, what Jesus is feeling. Look what happens or what happens to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So here you have this perfect man who is a sinless man who's never done anything wrong about to carry the wrath of God for all the sins of the world. And his fury is going to be released on him. And Jesus is becoming aware of it. That he's going to stand in the place of guilty sinners. And all the spiritual punishment for all the murders and rapes and adultery and robberies, he is going to endure the punishment of that. He's going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. It's all symbolism to this. And Jesus responds with a really interesting wording. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Watch how Jesus responds. He says in verse 39, Matthew 26, 39. It says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, that's important. Let me teach on that. I want you to see this when you read the scripture. Okay. In Matthew 26, 39, he says, not as I will, but as you will. So I have a question for you. And it's rhetorical. You don't have to shout it out. We believe as Christ followers that Jesus is God, but he's also man. So we say he's fully God and he's fully man. Question is, if Jesus is God, which I believe that he is, how could he have his will and his father will? How could there be two different wills? Okay, I'll tell you, because in this particular context, Jesus is speaking of his humanness, not of his divine nature. He has a divine nature because he's the son of God. He is God in flesh, but he's also human. And in his humanness, he has a mind, a will, and emotions. And he's simply, as in his humanness, becoming shockingly aware of what's about to happen to him, he says, if there is another way, you can imagine, please, 
let this cup, please. I don't want to have to drink this cup. But I think this is incredibly important for you and me today because it's in his humanness that he actually says, not my will, your will. If, Father, this is the cup, if this is the way to take the punishment of the world upon my shoulders so they can have fellowship with you, now just think about the man Put yourself there. No, you're not God, but, but you are human. So just go ahead and put yourself there. If this is the way, not my desire, your desire. This is where Jesus is in the place called the Gethsemane, or specifically in a garden near it praying and he makes this declaration not my will but your will be done Jesus is wrestling in his divine nature and he sees it very clearly what's about to happen and he knows and he's thinking of course you can imagine time has come the reason that I was born has come it's here it's 24 hours away or less than not my will. Your will be done. I think it's incredibly powerful. One other verse I want to see if you say, well, Jesus would go on to say when he's hanging on the cross, Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus say that? Some say because of Psalm 22. He's repeating Psalm 22 and he is. He's certainly quoting that from the scripture because it's written in Psalm 22 to fulfill a prophecy. But I want you to see this. God has promised you, and he's promised me something. What is it? He will never forsake you. But Jesus forsook his own son. In this moment, what God is telling his son, the father, I can't come help you right now. You're on your own. I want you to imagine trying to live your life for a moment without God. Where he says you're on your own. I can't help you. And the man Jesus is coming to grips with that. And his soul is exceedingly sorrowful. And he is going to be separated from the Father. I believe his soul was going to be separated, not his physical body, but his soul would be separated. And I believe that he goes and experiences hell soul. The spirit, he says, into your hands I commence my spirit. So the spirit goes, but his soul goes down to Hades. Complete separation from God. His father. And it had to happen that way. Could God jump in and say it? Yes, but he says, but this is the way it has to be because this is the only way to make the world righteous in my eyes. Sin has to be atoned for. It has to be paid for the only way to make that happen is to have a sinless man, a perfect man, pay the price for every sin of humanity. And so the punishment's going to be grueling and you're going to have to drink the cup. Question.
I know you love to be the hero and say, yeah, absolutely. Well, Jesus did. He drank it. And he drank every last drop of it. I just want you to put this in your mind, that God's wrath was poured in the fullness and completion on Jesus. I'm not coming today to preach you hell, fire, and brimstone and to scare you. I'm here to actually tell you some really good news. The cup of God's wrath is empty. Jesus consumed it all. If you go back into Exodus, where the Hebrew nation was following false gods and then you go through the journey in the wilderness in 40 years and all the ups and downs of the Jewish people and then eventually into the Gentiles and all the turning and all the declining of who God is and all the sins of the world, Jesus takes the cup, drinks it all so that we don't have to ever taste the cup of God's wrath. Man, that's... And I believe that in the surrender from the not my will, referring to his human desire, but your will was the man saying, God, Father, your will be done. I'll drink of the cup. Write this in your notes, last thought. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so we can drink the cup of God's grace. We do not drink the judgment of God. When we place our lives to the hands of Jesus, 2 Corinthians, he who had no sin became sin so we could become the righteousness of God, that we could be in right standing with God, that our souls don't have to go to Hades, our souls can be with the Father in eternity in heaven was intended to be prior to sin. Brothers, sisters, like, I never get tired of hearing that story. I could preach this every week. I could preach the same sermon every week and be like moved by it. And when I, when I think about that, I think, gosh, Jesus, what do you need from me? What do you want? Have it all. And I think for some of us today, we just need to be reminded of what Jesus did for us. That's what I've come like. Can I just remind you of that? <laughs> like, like this whole Christianity thing is way bigger than just attending a church service, checking a list off, or like reading a little devotion. This is ultimately, and you can, some could argue that this pivotal moment in Gethsemane, and me more specifically in this garden near this Gethsemane, everything changes the moment he says, not my will, but your which I proposed to you was a choice he made. He opted in. It's incredible. And on the cross, remember the words, it is finished. What's he referring to? The cup of God's wrath.
because I drank all the wrath. Here's why I share this with you today, and here's how I hope this maybe applies into your life, and I think there's a lesson we can take, and I'll just wrap up with a thought on this. Um, reading, reading through that, I couldn't help but to think, and this is off my notes, but I felt like, like I need to say it. I think it'll maybe connect with some of you or one of you. Um, I was talking to my wife about this uh, talk and kind of talking her through it last night more and chatting over dinner about it and um because that's what happens when you're married to a pastor you preached at at dinner time and um so um been following the lord since i'm 27 43 now um so i don't know the math 16 17 years something like that and i will tell you something if you ever decide to follow christ or if you're currently following christ and if you're not let me just tell you now i have found in following Jesus, I find my soul constantly in the garden. I find, I think, a piece of my soul. There's always been a part of my soul that's in Gethsemane. And I think the Holy Spirit is trying to speak something to maybe some of you in the room. And I just want you to know that's okay. God is into pressing. say yes to Jesus, God goes to work on our souls. Amen. And you know how he shapes us into his character? Gethsemane. Pressing. And he will allow pressing to come in your life. But I came to let you know today that that pressing is for a purpose. And it's to bring out the best wine the best oil. And he will allow pressing to come. Let me explain. When I first gave my life to the Lord, you know what I had to say? And what you had to say? Not my will, your will. I will not try to make my own way to heaven. You did it for me. I surrender. And so, one of the first things God called me to do was leave everything behind, leave every relationship behind. I had to leave my family. I had to leave friendships. I was dating in a relationship in college at the time when I was 27 years old, and God said, I want you to pack your truck. I want you to leave. Yes, I drove a truck. I'm from Texas. That's what we do. So <laughs> that's besides the point. But pack up your truck. You're leaving. And I want you to know, when I was 27, part of my soul pressed. You're going to have to leave it all behind, and I'm not going to make any promises what's going to happen 1,500 miles away. And so I would go to live with a family that had four children married, hadn't spoke to this guy in 10 years, and I'm moving into their home at the age of 27. Do you know what got pressed in my soul? Ready? 27 years old, living with a family and they removed a 14-year-old daughter, moved her into another room, and I took over this room. And I'm living with this family, 27 years old. Family thinks I'm nuts, and I get it. You know what? You know what got pressed on me? Listen to me. I'm, I'm serious about this. Pride. Pride got pressed. And then, when I was waiting tables and serving tables, I said, God, why did you bring me here to wait tables? Still, I could have done that anywhere. You know what got pressed? 
trust. Faith. You trust me? It's being pressed. And then eventually money gets pressed. And for some of you, God is pressing in your finances. And he will keep pressing until he draws out that faith and that trust to trust him in provision. To give him first and to give to him your best. Leave this job, change this career path, change that relationship. It's pressing. I find in following Jesus, there's always a garden that I find myself in and it's for another piece of my soul. And once I surrender that piece of my soul, guess what the good news is? God goes to work on another piece. So there's hope though. And what a perfect song we sang. You know what the hope is? You know know, there's hope? You know what the hope is? Your character has nothing to do with your acceptance because the wrath has been poured out. So you could have God still working on the same part of your soul, which some of you are. He's been pressing that piece of you for a long time and you're just standing there like this stack of baskets. I'm not moving and the pressing's still happening but it has nothing to do with your entrance into heaven. He's just trying to bring out the best wine, the best oil. I don't know what part of being pressed in your soul, but I want you to know, I know your soul's going to get pressed and my soul's going to get pressed. Patience will get pressed. Kindness will get pressed. Generosity will get pressed. On your faith journey, you will be pressed on every side because the student is like the teacher. But he set an example. 